0: we respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign Native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. We seek to better understand the PA profession.
1: Fortunately, our medical director had a plane. <laughs> he was that kind of doctor. So he said, Well, we're going to fight the state board. And so he and I went to the state board meetings once a month for the next nine months. It took us to convince them to allow a PA to work with remote supervision.
0: Well, I'm excited to bring Meredith Davison to you today. Dr. Davison is a mentor of mine who helped me from the moment I started as a PA. And all too often in life in the PA world, the folks that are not technically PAs tend to fly under the radar, and Meredith is one of those. She has contributed so much in her leadership as a PA program director, as an associate dean in the medical school, as a commissioner on our accrediting body, and as a member of our profession, focusing on research and the data that we need to collect for the profession. And I'm so delighted to have an opportunity to bring her with you today so that you can learn more about her contributions to the profession and about the Oklahoma University Tulsa PA program, which she helped create. As always, you can learn more about our guests on our website at the PAPathpodcast.com.
1: Hi, Kevin.
0: Hi, how are you?
1: Great. Good.
0: It's great to see you. Yes. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's uh, mm-hmm. really delighted that you could. And and I, I really want to highlight uh, not only your contributions to the profession, but just the importance of mentorship. And okay. uh, you, were, yeah. you were such a tremendous mentor to me. It's wonderful to watch kind of the, the evolution of mentorship, because then you learn that mm-hmm. you model that and then and- people carry that tradition on.
1: Sure. And it's it's wonderful to see all the people from all the years now who are faculty and so forth. Isn't it? So, yeah. I mean, I there's nothing I like better than when I go on a site visit and I find one of our graduates or...
0: Well, well, let's go ahead and dive in. Sure. Meredith, thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to learn about your rich tradition with our profession, which I know firsthand from, from you <laughs> well, being one you. of my strongest mentors. Maybe we'll just start with how does a PhD get involved in the PA profession like you did? What, what were the kind of things that lined up for you that ended up having you spend so much time dedicated towards the profession?
1: Well, it's kind of an unusual story, but uh, it actually started when I was in graduate school at the University of Oklahoma. In 1970, Bill Stanhope and Bill Horsley had started the PA program there in Oklahoma. And Bill had been a graduate, you know, that 1969 first class at Duke. So they had just started the program uh, a year before. When I started graduate school there in 1970. Two, I guess it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was still a new program. But even though I was a graduate student in, you know, neuropsych, I was, our biological psych, or whatever they call it these days, I was volunteering every week, two nights a week at a free clinic in Oklahoma City, the Paseo Free Clinic. And I got so. I volunteered so often, they had me be the person in charge of recruiting health providers to volunteer in the clinic. And it was, I believe it was Stanhope. I mean, you know, it was so long ago, but because I've known Bill Stanhope since, he uh, came by one day and said, You know, you keep trying to recruit residents, you ought to be recruiting PAs. So he introduced me at that early day into uh, what a PA was. So I started recruiting PAs uh, and the graduates of the program and some of the faculty that would come over. Bill was working for the VA at that time in Oklahoma City when he started the program. So that's how okay. I learned about uh, PAs was very, very early in my career while I was still a graduate student. The circle around, it's several years later, and I am um, working for the health department in Tulsa running uh, clinics for uh, maternal and child health. And I had put in an ad for a nurse practitioner, and I had a PA that came to me named Karen Matron. This was in the 80s. And uh, Karen said, you probably don't know what a PA is. And I said, well, actually, I do. (laughs) So Karen uh, went to work for us. But unfortunately, at that time in Oklahoma, they said that PAs had to be physically in the same room with a doctor, and we didn't run our clinics that way, as you can imagine. Fortunately, our medical director had a plane. (laughs) He was that kind of doctor. So he said, well, we're going to fight the state board. And so he and I went to the state board meetings once a month for the next nine months. It took us to convince them to allow a PA to work with remote supervision. And we're talking six blocks away. So it worked. It turned out it was just one person on the board who was recalcitrant for a personal reason. So then I worked with Karen, and that was during the time when the PA certification first came out. That uh, So I worked with her, and you know we paid for her certification, also for another PA who I still know, who I worked with at the University of Oklahoma, who worked for us then. So I got real involved early on a little bit in PA politics, and those were in the early years, you know, in the 80s. Sure. Okay, fast forward again to the 90s, so we we skipped another generation, and then this story kind of gets obvious. My husband had moved to, well, our whole family had moved to the Chicago area where he was uh, going to head up an AHAC program for the state of Illinois, and he was at a luncheon and talked to someone from what was at that time, Chicago College of Osteopathic Medicine, Steve Kopp, uh, who was the dean at that time. And Steve told him that they wanted to start a PA program, but they needed someone to help write a grant there at what later became Midwestern University. He said, I already have a PA, but he's not written grants before. And that was uh, Scott Chavez. Sure. And so uh, I said, he said, well, you know, my wife knows what a PA is and she's written a lot of grants. And and he says, she's home. I I was actually pulling wallpaper off an old house we'd bought. So uh, he called me and said, would you meet with uh, Scott and Steve? And I said, sure. So we wrote a HRSA grant, and that was in 1994 when the PA program there at Midwestern started. They changed their name by then. Wow. And so Scott told me at that time, I subsequently gotten a job at the University of Illinois in the College of Public Health, but it was part-time. And he said, as soon as I get this program started, I want you to come in and convert it to a master's program. Mm-hmm. So I started there in 1996.
0: So was that one of the earliest master's programs in the profession?
1: It was. You know, there were only, we were, I think, the 53rd PA program in the country. Mm-hmm. And I think we were in the early teens, I think 12 or 13. Okay. I actually called everyone that was had a master's when we set it up and talked to them. There, there were a handful of us. Sure. You know, because... Uh, there may not even have been that many. By the time we got it started, I think we were 12 or 13, but I, I don't think there were that many. I found out there were some other people. I went to the, my first PAE meeting, which was APAP then, and met people. And I met some other people who were trying to uh, become a master's program or do like we did, have two tracks. Sure. So uh, that was in uh, the mid you know, early 90s. And then Midwestern quickly started starting a program after we got the one in Downers Grove established down in uh, Glendale, as you well know. Yeah. <laughs> so we, uh, the most of the time seemed to be taken uh, for uh, got Chavez to be down in uh, Glendale. So I worked until he hired someone. I was kind of the associate director and director of the master's program. I'd been the director of the master's program all along, but then uh, Barry Cassidy took over down in Glendale Mm -hmm. and Scott was very busy with a lot of other endeavors. His heart had always been in correctional medicine. So we had a site visit, and Ruth Balwick was there. Still remember? And we made it through the site visit. And back then, the programs got feedback from Arc PA, and so we got feedback, and they said, "Well, we need to." You know, Ruth was very outspoken. Still is <laughs> said that we need we need to have a full time person here who's a program director, not just an associate like um, director. And uh, they said, "Well, well, we'd like to hire one, but we haven't found one." And Ruth said to them, well, yes, you have. She's sitting right here and pointed to me. And I'd always been under the perception that that I couldn't be a director. However, at that time, in 1997, you could be.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: So uh, I was actually hired as program director later that afternoon.
0: And uh, <laughs> they fantastic. made it.
1: Yeah, uh, they were very nice. Uh, Dr. Geffenberg, who's, you know, president of Midwestern, made it retroactive until, uh, you know, when we would started working on the accreditation. So
0: sure, sure.
1: So anyway, that's how I became program director at Midwestern.
0: That's wonderful. Yeah. So you were the program director at Midwestern for how many years? From
1: 1997 to 2006. And that's a
0: that's a good stretch.
1: And since it was retroactive, it actually turned out to be right at ten years.
0: Okay, so you and I met at Midwestern, obviously. We you did. Were the director of the master's program when I was graduating in 1996.
1: Yes. Mm. So you were a student there. I remember you and I talking several times. You were kind of the leader of the students. I can't remember what your title was, but you were definitely the one always in our office telling us <laughs> what we needed to change. And uh, and I got most of that because Scott was down in Glendale uh, all the time. And so I remember seeing that you had great leadership potential, uh, even as a oh, student. Thank you,
0: thank you. Awesome. Yeah.
1: You could have just come in and yelled at us, and you 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 usually had a plan and a way you wanted to change things. So you were uh, pretty sophisticated, much more so than your other students, because you know you'd had the background in the military, which gave you great leadership skills even as a student. Wow, so, uh, thank
0: you. That's that's very kind. I well, it's true. Was, uh, <laughs> I, you know, it's, new programs are tough, right? There's just, they uh, are tough. Every new program's going to have some some bumps in the road. That's part of the evolution of a program, and and so. I think uh, the benefit to students is you you get into a new program, you have a chance to help shape it with right. programs that are willing to take feedback, which you were, obviously. Yeah.
1: So. Well, it was very difficult because Midwestern had a very aggressive plan for us to grow that program. We had 14 graduates first year, I believe, 36 the second, 57 mm-hmm. the third, and then 84 the fourth. Yeah. So we were just pedaling as fast as we could and trying to. uh, And that's how I got a lot of experience, though, even though I was supposed to be just over the master's program, it was all hands on deck. And I lectured a lot in public health areas and research areas. And then I also knew Chicago fairly well by then. And also, my husband, being head of the AHEC, knew a lot of hospitals. So I did a lot of recruiting in the early years for preceptors and training sites for us.
0: Yeah, that, that's an interesting connection, right? The, the AHEC connection, I think, is one that's yeah. often misunderstood as to how valuable it can be on oh, both enormous. sides, right?
1: Oh, yes. And uh, there was still a lot of educating to do in Illinois. I was surprised having come from Oklahoma, where PAs had been around, like I said, since 1970. And here it was 25 years later, approximately. And uh, in Illinois, no one knew what a PA was, or so it seemed. You know, At that time, there was only our program and the small Cook County program.
0: Yeah, that's right. And when I graduated in 96, there were only 29,000 certified PAs in the country. So yeah, it, 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 we had to introduce <laughs> ourselves to everybody. As Everyone. Explaining what we did. Right. Yeah. So
1: you can imagine that that caused more issues in trying to recruit preceptors.
0: Sure. So you left Midwestern uh, after 10 years. Where did you head after that?
1: Well, I, l- I left Midwestern in 2006 because my husband had had an opportunity. Our our kids were growing up and the youngest was leaving for college in 2000. Uh, let's see, five. She left the year before. And uh, so we wanted to get back to um either Oklahoma or Texas or somewhere in this part of the country, all of our, my husband and my parents were aging. Uh, His father had been ill a lot in 2004 and so forth. So we began to look for jobs in that part of the country. And by this time, you could no longer be a program director and be a non-PA of a PA program. And since I'd been doing that, I kind of had to look at what I wanted to do. And Richard got a job my husband got a job much faster than I did, and he went down to the osteopathic school uh, and became vice president in 2004. So I stayed back to, for my daughter to graduate from college, and I mean from high school, and for her to continue to look for a position. And I was about to take a position, I'd been offered a great position with the uh, Tulsa City County Health Department. And I was really looking forward to that. I'd started my MPH. Again, this is another strange thing. My husband was at a luncheon and met the dean of the OU uh, School of Community Medicine. And that was Jerry Clancy. He's now at Iowa and Jerry was telling him that part of his strategic plan and coming there to this regional campus of the OU Health Sciences Center was to develop a PA program. And he wished he knew someone who could start one. And evidently, my husband chuckled and said, well, you're not going to believe this, but my wife could do that for you. Uh-huh. I got a call from Jerry that afternoon and asked if I would interview. And I said, well, I have another job I have to let them know by it was less than 10 days. Sure. And he said, well, good. We'll arrange all your interviews like the next three days or something.
0: Wow. That's unusual in academia.
1: It is. Well, if you ever meet Dr. Clancy, that's the way he does things. But he was able to get me interviewed with a recommendation for this position. So I decided not to take the health department position. So I go down to uh, Oklahoma. Do I need to turn? Did that make a sound on your end?
0: um yes yes let's just start with so i go down to oklahoma
1: okay what do you want me just a second that means something's still on i'll turn it off first okay okay yeah oh after i i left my email open okay that's okay i'm fine so i i went down to oklahoma in um In May, and I actually retained a position because I was uh, the PI on a a HRSA grant up in (laughs) Downers Grove. So for the summer, I literally went back and forth uh, till I guess it was the end of September when that HRSA grant Ended. Mm -hmm. So uh, I met with Jerry once, and he said, um, "Well, I need you to start this program. We'd like it to uh, matriculate its first students in 2006." And I said, "Well, I don't think we can do it that fast." He said, "Well, I think you can." (laughs) And uh, he he gave me a file and said, uh, "Basically, go to it." He says, "I don't have a clue, but uh, here here's the names of some people." So fortunately for me, I had a sister who was a practicing PA in the state of Oklahoma, and she Mm -hmm. knew lots of PAs, and she got me into the PA community in Oklahoma, and I went down, met with uh, the program director in Oklahoma City. But it was quite a challenge for the, I I worked harder probably than I ever have for that year and a half. And, you know, I called John McCarty, who was head of ARC then, told him what I was doing and said, oh, I don't think you can do it, Meredith. So I had everyone (laughs) saying that I couldn't get it done there. But fortunately, I I did. And I met the right people and we uh, put together a Real quality program. Now, one thing Jerry wanted to do is he wanted to go back to the original model. He was very knowledgeable about PAs himself. And by now, Jerry had become the president of OU Tulsa. And the new dean, I was very lucky, was Dan Duffy. And he was a person who had worked with the original PAs too and also knew the physician who started PAs. So he and Dr. Stead had known each other. So he knew. How it originally was done. So Dr. Duffy at OU, who's dean now, and Dr. Clancy decided that we were going to put together a program like the original where med students and PA students train together. And so that's what we have to this day at OU uh, there were lots of uh, gnashing of teeth and tears shed, particularly by some of the chairs who didn't want to do it this way. But with the Dean and the president behind you, all I had to do was just take their plaque because I knew that that's what we were going to do. And now at OU, they just think it's the most wonderful thing and they are all proud of it. And of course it's some, some of those chairs that were problematic are no longer there.
0: Yeah. So tell us about the program. <laughs> how many months is it and and how much it's, time it's, do they spend with the med students?
1: Oh, well it's, Thirty months. Uh, and frankly, the reason we started it as thirty months is because that's we wanted to do it or I wanted to do it as fast as possible. And Oklahoma City's physician associate program was thirty months. Okay so I could I mean it only people on academia know how this goes, but you know, I was able to use some of their course numbers, and so I didn't have as many new courses to get through the the appropriate committees and so forth. Hmm. It's a 30 month program, though, to this day. It's divided 50 50, uh, didactic and 50%. So we have 15 months in the didactic, which is two summer semesters and two a fall and spring. Sure. And then, then we have 15 months, actually about 14 and a half of clinical. Okay. And all of the basic science portion is taught and the didactic is taught just to PA's. We, we have a lot of the same actually lectures from the same instructors, but we, we've never been able, we're not on the same schedule because of our use of the anatomy lab and everyone else in the anatomy lab. And we wanted to start with anatomy. Sure. But our clinical, uh, they have 15 months, and eight months of it is they're on the same teams with medical and PA students together. So all of the basic stuff, surgery, internal medicine, family, psych, ob PEDS, I think I named them all, maybe missed one. Now, we do have a separate emergency med because the medical students, believe it or not, don't have emergency medicine. Hmm. And then we also have then our students do a second, we call it community medicine. It's usually family where that they go to and it has to have a PA as their instructor there, the preceptor. And then we do do an underserved. So we make sure that the last six months is pretty much uh, six to seven months. Uh, is pretty much out in the community with practicing PAs. Though they have practicing PAs, of course, in our clinical departments, but more more physicians. than
0: Yeah, so some mindfulness about uh, exposing them to the professionalism of the colleagues that are already out there precepting.
1: Oh, very much, because we didn't just want to train a, a medical student without a residency. We wanted to train a PA. And I think we've really been successful in that because we have so many PAs that we have, like in some areas, we have PAs, like in family medicine, we have so many PAs working in our family medicine clinics that they teach most of the clerkship to the PAs and the medical students. (laughs)
0: Fantastic.
1: It's, we, you know, there's such a feeling of collegiality and real interprofessional education at our institution. We also have all our students, we have an integrated longitudinal clinic that they do for the whole 15 months of their clinical training. And that is just with a PA mentor. Okay. Though we have what we call our bedlam clinics, probably not the best of names, but it's been around so long, we can't change it, where our med students, they do the same thing. And this is all going on in the same clinic, so there's a lot of collaboration, asking questions back and forth. There are lectures given to the students about community medicine and responsiveness to the community in this longitudinal clinic, and both the PA faculty and the med school faculty give them together.
0: So if I know you well, Meredith, (laughs) either you or somebody that you have mentored has done research on that effect of the medical students and PA students having such good collegiality. What have you learned about their attitudes in learning together in those clinics?
1: Well, what we have learned in our own research, and and frankly, I haven't, pub- this is, we've got one in publication right now, but we hadn't published it broadly yet in the national journals. Mm-hmm. We given presentations. Is that both groups like it better <laughs> and faculty like it better. Uh, it was. It's amazing to me uh, that we really can't see any downsides. The only thing we hear sometimes is uh, we have the rotations are slightly different, even though they're together. For example, on OB Guide, we know that the vast majority of our PAs will never deliver a baby. Sure. But well, so, what we do is we have the PAs have more sessions in the outpatient prenatal and gynecology clinics, though they get some deliveries. And likewise, we have the medical students doing more of the inpatient gynecology, like surgeries and so forth. And that's what I found very useful when I was associate dean, since I was over the curriculum of both groups. (laughs) I could, or had oversight, I could work so that we, the PA program put together what they needed for their outcomes, and then the medical school faculty did the same, and then we... Since they're going to be trained together, then we would arrange it. So it worked. Sure. So I was surprised, frankly, how easy it was. What I hear from most people, and um, I will tell you, we put in a grant and we got this criticism back on the grant, which, by the way, we didn't get and this was obviously a PA, he says, you know, uh, this would never work, you know, physicians would never accept this training, training oh. and that you must have a very unusual situation. So your model is not uh generalizable to uh PA's programs in general. You know, I would disagree. I think that model has a lot to go for it to getting to where, PA, you know, the, I'm I'm aware of all the current conflicts and discussions in the profession about whether you collaborate or supervise but i think truly once people have trained together now what i'm real interested in now is looking at the outcomes of these people you know it takes a long for the physicians to be out they're only recently out uh, sure. so now i'm going to go back to see what their attitudes are towards pas and i, I would predict they're more positive, they're more prone to be hiring them and so forth. Oh, yeah, I would totally
0: agree. I I was just talking to an interventional radiology (laughs) PA from the University of Arizona Banner Medical Center this week. And it was the division chief that they brought in who had worked with PAs in a previous Mm -hmm. institution that really opened up the door for PAs to be hired there. So I think to your point, once Physicians have had a chance to work collaboratively with PAs in some capacity. I would guess more often than not, they're, they're advocates for sure. the, the role to help their lives be a little bit better in delivering care to their patients.
1: Sure. Well, and the, the patient's the real winner too in the long run. I just, you know, we have found that it works together so well because not only what was most interesting to us, and we have a publish on this, was also we, we kept thinking about the academic. Could the PA students do as well? We use the same what are called shelf exams for the end of rotation exam. Mm -hmm. And we have the PAs and the medical students taking the same shelf exam. We think they should have the same knowledge level at this point. You know, the med students are going to go on to a residency and get a lot more knowledge. But at this point, they should take the same. Well, that gives enormous respect because they end up studying together. And we found that there are all these informal interactions that go on between the students that are, it's kind of like the glue that... You know, when you work together, you have friendships together, you get to know each other, you get to see each other's life goals. We've had numerous marriages. We've had numerous other liaisons, shall I say. We, you know, they're just, they support one another. If the PAs have been on the way our 30-month curriculum does, those students that are doing their last three months, they've been rotating for 12 months. Well, they end up mentoring the medical students who are just starting see the way our show yes. marks There's a three month overlap for the, the PAs or the seniors, if you will.
0: Yeah. So they end up being kind of the, uh, the clinic guide to helping them orient to getting started yeah.
1: from everything yeah. to where the, uh, you know, the, where do you go to get free lunch or where do you do this? Uh, yeah. It's it's very interesting to us, these kind of informal relationships that have been fostered by our model. And I think, I, you know, it would be interesting to tease apart how much of it is those relationships versus how much of it is, is the real training.
0: Yeah. I mean, so much of the IPE literature talks about that importance of socialization it is. and spending time together in a social right. setting before Kind of right. pushing them into a professional silo setting. So, yeah,
1: but here they're studying exactly the same thing, and in our case, they've all had the same. They take the same anatomy course. It's just taught two different semesters, so sure. they've got all this back experience that's similar to.
0: Yeah, the uh, the being in the trenches together with the same instructors. So
1: right. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, Meredith, one of the things that I think, as I look back at your career, that you've contributed so much towards is research. You've served in many different roles for the National Associations in research capacities, trying to encourage faculty and PAs to consider research. Can you talk a little bit about your national service and what you've learned over the years as you've really served in that capacity with other people like Rick Dean and others? Sure.
1: Sure. Well, first of all, I'm very fortunate to have had so many great people to mentor me about PA research. I was trained in research in graduate school, but to do it in the PA profession, I think what came about, I've actually changed my mind about a lot of things. If you'll recall the program we had at Midwestern, we taught quite a bit of research skills to the the PA students. Uh, I believe we how many 36 extra hours or something it was a lot you know currently I don't really think that's the way to go uh, for research because I think all PAs need some research instruction during their career and during their training but I really think like in PA programs you need to have either uh, someone with a PhD a public health degree who is a researcher who can assist faculty because I I don't think most faculty who want to be PAs or even PA faculty have the kind of interest In the the research, even if we're talking about not bench research, but translational research, usually, or epidemiological or educational research. But I think I've seen having a person in the department who has that interest and can lead other faculty through the intricacies of the IRB, for example, which is such a barrier. uh, Developing a survey, going through the steps you need to do to publish. So I really think if we would encourage, and maybe that needs to be encouraged through a a standard in the uh, PA, uh, ARC PA standards. Mm-hmm. programs to have the capacity to assist their faculty with the research so that we can get research on good educational topics. You know, there's still so many things we don't know. I think there's a need for, and you know, a lot of this research is being done on the economics of PA practice. Uh, that That's really a niche area that you're not going to get anyone who's not an economist or who's not working with an economist to do. But there's still a lot of things that we don't know very much about for the PA profession. Instead, we get, even today, and I'm still an active reviewer for the journal, so I review a lot more than makes the journal. There's a lot of studies that come through that are just one program that, sure. you know, this worked for us. And I do think you have to expand if we're going to come up with things that's really useful information. Um, yeah,
0: those seem more like pilot studies these days, and you really need to have a collaborative research program you do. to look for generalizability.
1: Right. And, yeah. you know, we don't have a standard set. And I hear students that I counsel who want to go into PA are so upset by this all the time we don't have a standard set of prereqs it's like uh in the profession which is i know hard for students
0: yeah uh, yeah and, and and it causes a there's a lot of extra cost to that there a is a lot of extra stress.
1: stress there's
0: so many i know in la when i was in la so many institutions didn't have the course so they had yeah. to go to a community college to, uh, be able to track it down yeah.
1: Right. And, uh, you know, so people would be hunting for courses or people would find that courses weren't taught the right semester, it would hold them up a year. Yeah. And you don't see that in medicine. Things are much in medicine. They actually have I was surprised to find a lot fewer prereqs than we do. Now, of course, they've got four years and a residency, but I don't know. I wish there was a, an effort towards, I, I think there, I know there have been in previous times.
0: Yeah. I think PAEA has been chipping away at that, but it's. They
1: have. It's still a long way to go.
0: Yeah. It's, in one sense. So you have these, These uh, per, there's so much development on the, the new program side. Right, and with the ARC not having standards for prereqs, right, it's left to the programs to kind of look to PAEA, and they look back at their old programs to design exactly. what they do. but there's no data to that. It's no, just
1: no data. For what it. they know, yeah, yeah. And there are many other areas. That's just an example of one in education that we need for. But I don't think it's going to happen with your busy PA faculty member. And I think that's getting better. So faculty are treated more, like, uh, more reasonably, at least by a lot of institutions. Sure. So that they have time to do something. But most faculty are not going to choose scholarship of that type.
0: Yeah. Well, and I was just doing this recently, Meredith. I was looking at workload calculations
1: mm-hmm. and
0: I use I used a double AMC methodology that Elias Villarreal had utilized at Northern Arizona University as a as a starting point just to kind of estimate for accreditation what would be sufficient right. to cover our curriculum and you know in that process you have to build in time for scholarships so yep. they can move down the, the track of promotion you have to build in time for service because there's so many committees that we have to right. to, to manage yeah. while we're running a program yeah so, I and yet we don't, we the pro- PA profession doesn't have a national standard for working.
1: No, we don't. So, no, and I think that working in the MD world, you know, my first foray into medical education was at, at a you know, in, in, with four doctors, I spent uh, my first seven years in that capacity before, and then I was 10 years in a nursing school before I made it to PA. Uh, so I've seen from a variety and, and we have much less research about our education than either of those professions by far.
0: Yeah. I think nursing has done such a great job of recruiting students from a wide variety of perspectives. They so have. They, they have a great pipeline of leadership. You know, nurses yes. that love leadership, nurses that love research, uh, nurses that just want love to be clinical. Clinical
1: practice, practitioners. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. It, that's but not we've never really university. looked
1: at it. You know, we've always had the, the model that everyone, and for a long time, that everyone was going to be a family practitioner in a rural setting. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and now, partially, that's led by the government, HRSA having given so many grants for people to do that. But on the other hand, I think we have to look at the reality of where the profession, my students, at least even here in Oklahoma, find many more jobs and specialties than they ever do in family medicine.
0: Yeah. And yet it sounds like you have a very strong curriculum built around community medicine.
1: We do. And
0: and they still end up in specialty.
1: Yeah, well, but we define community broadly, sure. you know, as, as everyone does now and, and try to, you know, you can practice with these principles regardless of what area you practice in. Yeah. But it's very interesting the way things have changed over the years. There's-
0: Does the Oklahoma University Tulsa uh, program look for a certain type of applicant, uh, given the model that you've...
1: We do. We do. We want someone who's really strong and uh, shows evidence of having worked in community, either through volunteer or working, as well as people who have a very interdisciplinary focus. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, our program, we're pretty... Open with what it's like, but uh, but now things are changing in Oklahoma. When uh, we started this program in 2006, we were the second program in the state, and the other program started in 1970. So there were 36 years between those two programs. Sure. Uh, now it's 2022, and we have five programs.
0: <laughs> My goodness! Wow.
1: So, uh, and I hear there are others opening. <laughs> uh, you know, the Everywhere. biggest problem we have is what everyone has in every state is finding qualified faculty is people who want to commit to academics and yeah. Work. And since salaries are so high in this part of the country, as as I think they are in Arizona also, it's hard for us in academics to keep up with the salary.
0: Sure. So let's talk a little bit about accreditation because you've served as a site visitor and as a commissioner for the ARCPA. So maybe if you could share a little bit about your perspective of accreditation, its purpose how it helps students and programs. You know, I know that our educators that are listening, it, it, it gets a little bit of a knot in the gut, but there's yeah. really important reasons for having standards. So can you share a little bit about your experience? Sure. There?
1: Well, let me start, if you don't mind, Kevin, with how I got into accreditation. I was trying to look at some way I could serve the profession that I didn't need to be a clinician. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and as I mentioned previously, I've worked in um, DO education, MD education, nursing education, that was at a baccalaureate level, and PA education, of course, for the most years. And I've been, been involved, and also with residents um, in the medical school. So I've been involved in accreditation from a lot of different bodies. So I felt like I was fairly cognizant of how accreditation Worked, what it was for, and uh, some of the current issues. So that's why I first applied to be a site visitor. So I was a site visitor for many years back, starting in, I think it was, I, I first started site visiting in the year 2000. So for 22 years. Uh-huh. And uh, then I went on to be, I served six years uh, on the commission. And currently I'm actually chair of the postgraduate subcommission. Okay. So when we started that up, uh, our PA did a few years ago, they asked if I would chair the first postgraduate commission because of my background. And
0: that's so, great.
1: In fact, I was on the phone about that this morning. So, what does accreditation do? Well, I always explain it pretty simply. Um, let's say that I'm going to drive to Arizona to, to see uh-huh. you. I want to know that if I am taken into the emergency room somewhere and I see a PA, or for that matter, if I see a nurse or a a physician, I want to be sure that anywhere I am in this country, that that person is a quality person and that it doesn't matter whether they trained in Wyoming or they trained in New Hampshire or Florida, that we know that that PA has graduated from an accredited university and that we can be certain that that... Education than they got was of a certain quality. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we have in this country. We don't really appreciate it. You know, I was on a trip last year to, uh, I went with a group from my church on a mission trip uh, into New Mexico and I sustained a fall, pretty serious fall, ended up in the emergency room. uh, And it was, you know, and I was thinking about that as I lay for many hours in the emergency room waiting for services sure. in my mask, but um, mm-hmm. that how confident I was that this PA was checking on me every now and then we were waiting. They wouldn't do anything until they ascertained that my, I didn't have a head injury, obviously. Yeah. So that's what yeah. we were waiting for. Everything turned out fine, except for a few minor scars from cuts, Good. Good. but uh, but that's what accreditation is for. Accreditation is a way for a group of your peers, and that's one thing I think is so important with ARC PA is that we're all people who've been there on the other yeah. side of the table that develop the standards, that these standards then are brought forth between for the educators to look at. We go back change them. People who are on the ARC PA are individuals who are majority PA educators that they develop these. But the whole thing is just so that you and I can be assured of quality care along with everyone else.
0: Sure. So one of the areas of accreditation that's changed since 2000, I think there's been yes. a greater emphasis is on our self-study and the C standards, right. the ability to analyze ourselves and manage ourselves. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of that from your perspective?
1: Well, it's because when we go ascertain for quality by doing a quote, site visit, if you will, what we're doing is we're doing what's called in statistics, a cross-sectional analysis. We're getting us we're getting a, a cut in time. We're looking at the program that day, but we're not going to be back for maybe 10 years. Okay. So what's going to happen between the time that we're there and when we go back 10 years from now? So that's what the self-study does. It forces a program to be involved in a continuous quality assurance. So it's really the same thing as QI that goes on clinically in a hospital. We want to know when what we're doing. So we gather data. We want to know when we make errors, which we're humans, we all do. And then we want to be able to reflect, which is analyze, and then make changes that are needed and then complete the circle and go back and see did that take a care difference. of it yeah yeah so to me it's not it shouldn't be a a hard concept for clinicians to understand because now that's what goes on in every hospital and hopefully every practice in the country so it's just the way we do it in education is what we call the self study and we just have several key factors that are the major important areas for Having quality education for the students, which has to do with the faculty, which has to do with the curriculum, which has to do with the clinical rotations, which has to do with evaluation. These areas, we require the programs to gather data about themselves, to reflect on it themselves, and analyze the data in such a way that they can come to conclusions about potential changes they either need to make or that they don't need to make. So it's, it shouldn't be, it it should be the way that programs should live their lives within the program. (laughs) You know, every day, ideally, it shouldn't be something that just happens when the people from ARC are showing up and everyone is totally worried.
0: Yeah. I mean, you make some reasonable decisions about your program, uh, but you have to take a look at it retrospectively to see where those decisions on target or, do you need to shift gears a little bit? So yeah. it's, um, I you know, I was delighted at, at a recent accreditation meeting I attended. I was delighted to hear them really emphasize that they don't want complex statistical analysis. No,
1: not at all. <laughs>
0: they just want us to get the simple things out of the way. Trend analysis, uh, what's right. working, what's not, yeah. strengths and weaknesses, areas for improvement, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I think in, to be honest, and I'll say this as a member of ARC, I don't think we've done as good a job of, bringing people along, you know, as we could have. I'm just terribly complimentary of everything that Sharon Lynx has done in the last few years of bringing in more uh, PAs into RPA. I mean, for years, not to say anything bad about John, but he had to run that thing by himself. He didn't yeah. have a lot of systems and now we have lots of educators. So we're able to do sessions like the one perhaps you went to. You know, I think complicated statistics is the worst thing because you unless you're a statistician or have studied a lot of statistics, you don't understand them. Where we can all understand a trend, which way a line is going. We can all understand a, an average.
0: Well, Meredith, when you look back over your <laughs> career, as you look back at all the contributions you've made and experienced with the PA profession, w- what brings you the most joy? Oh,
1: definitely seeing people like you, Kevin. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, to look at people that I've influenced, I I hope not only educators That I've been able to influence, but I hope I've also been able to influence some people in their clinical practice. My practice is always focused on using the literature for evidence-based practice, so uh, to me, that's the most satisfaction. If I've been able to help the clinicians I've trained be better clinicians, and if I've attracted a few people towards leadership or education or research, uh, that's very satisfying.
0: Yeah, well, we, we talked about this before, before we started recording, I, I think your mentorship of me and others has led to us getting involved in PA education and leadership. And now that I'm on, you know, I've been in 20 years now as a PA uh, director and educator, I, I'm getting a chance to see what you're talking about. Because yeah. I'm seeing my graduates that I had the chance to be part of their training now entering PA education or becoming directors. Yeah. And it's really rewarding. You're right.
1: isn't It's wonderful. I mean, uh, it's what education is all about is hopefully, uh, you know, just think as if as humans, we had to learn everything for the first time. Uh, we're all dependent yeah. on each other, and I do think, and I feel like PA—that's so new. We—it's still a very new profession. We're, yeah. we're only talking a few, a little over fifty years. So I
0: agree. I agree. There, there's a lot to do.
1: There is, but, but at the same time, we've done a lot for fifty something years. So I uh, fifty-three, I guess, this year.
0: <laughs> well, I, I think I'm going to take the the liberty of speaking on behalf of the profession, and uh, just thank you for everything that you've done to contribute to the growth of this profession and the stability of this profession over your career. I think so often in our profession, people look to the PAs, but there are a, a myriad of people that were physicians and PhDs and social workers and others who have contributed to our success. And they often go unrecognized. And I just want to thank you because I know, I know a lot of the things we're talking about were influenced by your leadership. And well, uh, I feel very you. grateful to have known you.
1: Thank you so much. I I appreciate the PAs for always being so accepting and willing to uh, let me be a part of the group. And uh, I think the the proudest uh, awards I've ever gotten. I'm an honorary PA, both in Illinois and in Oklahoma. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) that's right. So you you are
0: technically one of us. Well,
1: (laughs) honorary, but uh, but it's no. uh, The PA profession is a great profession, and I really believe in it. You know. I I don't think we need to depend on physicians for everything. And I think PAs are, I just like the model. I like the way the collaboration goes and so forth.
0: I yeah. appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for taking time to share with us about the Oklahoma University's program in Tulsa. Well, thank you. And about your, your contributions and passions for the profession. And we wish you and your colleagues the very best.
1: Okay. And I should put in uh, the name of the, our program director, Shannon Iams, who, by the way, was one of the first faculty I hired, who's now our program director, if anyone's interested in talking more with Stand. about our model. We know it doesn't go everywhere, but there are aspects of it that can be incorporated in every program. Absolutely.
0: Well, we want to thank our guest, Dr. Meredith Davison from the University of Oklahoma Tulsa PA School and their medical school. We appreciate her sharing her insights and contributions to the profession over the past several decades. Tune in next week as Steph and I wrap up season two with our reflection episode. We look forward to looking back at the last season and looking ahead to season three. We do plan on taking the summer off to get a little bit of relaxation in, but look forward to bringing you a whole series of new and interesting people as we continue to highlight the profession and try to help level the playing field for all applicants. Until next time, I wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the University of Arizona.